0: We continue on in Job, and I call this message crushing circumstances. Uh, these are some of the toughest chapters, uh, and toughest portion of Job to read because um, you watch the world and life press in on him in a way that seems unbearable. And I wrote down here, have you ever felt the weight of the world pressing down on you? Uh, life gets so hard that you not think you can breathe. The pain you face is beyond comprehension. And we live in a world where that does happen. It's one of the difficulties of life, especially for the believer. One of the things that makes understanding a good and all-powerful God often confusing. But that is where we're going to find Job in the next four scenes. As I mentioned last week, we're going to watch four scenes unfold, shifting from heaven to earth. Uh, Scenes from the worst type of horror movie. And I'm not a fan of horror movies. If someone puts one on, I'm hiding like a child Uh, because I can't handle it, Uh, but there's no hiding from the horror and agony of Job's crushing circumstances. Everything becomes too real and too personal. As Christopher Ash notes, our horror in reading the story of Job is more than an empathetic horror. It is a personal horror. We cannot escape the pain this man faces. We cannot run from the questions that it brings to the surface, and we cannot but dread the thought of having to walk through it. Nothing is more melancholy or dark than reading about a righteous man walking through the most horrific of life circumstances. But here's what's critical. This is all part of the backstory needed to correctly understand the dialogue that encompasses the the bulk of Job, that takes place through the rest of Job. From here on out, we're going to hear Job and his friends talking back and forth and the information we have now will help us understand to discern what is right and what is terribly wrong about the friend's advice. We'll understand where Job wanders off. We're going to walk with him through the pain that he has. And, and, and here in these chapters, we watch Job's response and it's an example of what we should be doing and we're going to watch Job struggle for a while and walk with him uh, through a journey that's difficult because we're given information here, and this is really critical, that Job and his friends never have. And so we move from the first five verses that gave us a picture of quite the human being. And in all honesty, he is the most blameless man that's ever lived aside from Christ who came to earth as a man, and then as God to die on the cross for our sins. But he is the man who's blameless. He has integrity inside and out. His life is what it is from Sunday to Monday. He's no hypocrite. He was upright, a man that dealt fairly and justly with others. He was reverent, honoring God and taking God seriously. He was moral, turning away from evil. This was not a self-righteous man that walked around saying, I'm better than you, but instead a truly moral man who ran from evil, understood the temptation for sin and had a repentant heart and actively sought to resist sin. He was highly blessed, wealthy and gifted. Understand that the money didn't just drop in his lap. He was wealthy, but he also managed a huge farm and actually a huge caravan business there. He lived an enviable life, but now he becomes the center of attention in four unfolding scenes. And let's be honest, As we read these scenes, we don't want Job's life anymore. One through five seems great. Now we watch this unfold and we're saying, please don't let me be Job. We begin with scene one. This takes place in heaven. I call it Satan's proposal. Look at verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. And we're going to be looking here at an arrangement and we encounter an arrangement or a council and watch it unfold. And the Lord said unto Satan, and I want to clarify in Hebrew, it says the Satan or the adversary. And in all honesty, there's a lot of conversation about the the and how important the the is. And is this really referring to Satan or just an adversary? I think you see Job as the earliest book (coughs) introducing the adversary. And so he's called the adversary. Uh, Hebrew uses those words in various parts of the Old Testament to explain anyone who is against the adversary. So understand, if you were reading Hebrew, you would encounter the same words, uh, but it's listed as Satan, uh, translated that way, because that's who it is. This is the Satan. We're introduced to this wicked person. We learn more about him (coughs) in Ezekiel, and we learn more about his rebellion in Genesis. But here is the Satan coming in. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And we have the New Testament talks about the devil as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I want you to get a picture of a vagabond wandering around looking for trouble, basically, or to create trouble. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, which by the way, that's God connecting to Job and giving him quite a compliment. This is my servant, not just a servant, but my servant. That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And and don't miss this. (coughs) Job was described in verses one through five. And now God is affirming who Job is. There is no doubt. There's no argument. And that's a critical thing to understand as you walk through the rest of Job. God has confirmed his character. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou, hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. And you can hear the frustration in Satan's voice. I can't do nothing to Job anyway. You don't let anyone get near Job. You've hedged him in. You've protected him. It also tells you that Satan has no power except what God allows. Um, It's not a competing gods. There's only one God that's all powerful and Satan is not. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, what do we see in scene one? And I call it Satan's proposal. And right away, the curtains are opened and we encounter an an arrangement. And I mentioned in Sunday school, everything starts with an A. And that's just for my benefit. You can ignore it right now. But it's an arrangement that we see. And this is a look at how things work in the heavenlies, at least how they worked in this dispensation. We walk into a boardroom gathering. We find supernatural beings gathered in front of the divine one, the creator and ruler of all. <clears throat> I want to make a mention. God is not surprised by the presence of Satan. God's called this council. Uh, we're given a glimpse of a divine council. Psalm one says this, Uh, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. And that's a little g, speaking of the supernatural beings. God is there, they're reporting to God. Um, This shows us God being uniquely in charge. Everyone is coming to report or answer to him, and he is the only one that is God. That's critical to recognize. Yet, as Robert File notes, and this is critical, on the other hand, as you look at this divine council, it emphasizes the presence and activity of other powers in the universe. To put this another way, God is supreme, God is in control of what happens, but nevertheless, there are other powers in the universe who influence events. This is a dramatic way of showing that God's creation, God's providence, is not something mechanical but something that involves a series of relationships, which makes sense, right? Because we talk about relationships, having a relationship with God. And so sometimes you'll, you'll make a mistake if you look at this and try to undermine God's power and goodness, but you also make a mistake if you make it real mechanical and robotic. We see a relationships here, and it's something that involves interaction between God and his creatures. And that's a picture of the divine council. We see his power, we see his right, we see his rule, we see his permission here, but you also see other influences. And oftentimes, I know for me, I'm less likely to think about other influences, but it's important to recognize spiritual warfare and what's going on. And this battle is not against flesh and blood and recognize that in the world around us. And so we're not surprised that in this divine council we encounter an adversary, the Satan. And I mentioned he's a vagabond roaming earth looking for whom he may devour. I want to make a couple notes because theologically many people are are off here and it's many people in the church. I want you to note that he is roaming because he's not able to be everywhere at once. God is, God is everywhere, omnipresent, but that is uniquely what God can do it's important to not become what's called dualistic. And dualistic is when you see God and you say, there's the good God. And then you see Satan and he's the bad God. It's what every cartoon was in the 50s, 60s and 70s, right? The angel on one shoulder and the other angel on the other shoulder. And you're trying to go between two and the weight of each is equal. And the reality is this, we're looking at Satan, who is a created being, yes, he is supernatural. We need to understand that. We, we need to see that. This divine council was not human kings. This was supernatural beings. But they are all created supernatural beings. Satan's power is not equal to God's power. <laughs> Satan can do nothing or say anything above what God wants. Satan steals none of God's sovereignty and power. He is a created being. He's a rebellious created being, a supernatural one, but nonetheless created. And in this council, he is the adversary there to oppose God. God asks where he's been. God already knows where Satan's been. So he's asking a question. It's for our benefit to understand. And then he pushes Satan to acknowledge Job Mind you, Satan doesn't bring up Job because Job confronts Satan's rebellion. Satan wanted God's glory. Job gives God his glory. And so Satan is ignoring Job. God is pointing it out. Satan being the rebellious one, the angel who sought for God's glory and was cast out of heaven in shame now questions the reality of Job's worship. And what we need to see is this he's really not questioning Job. He's questioning God. He's undermining the integrity of God. And what is at stake in this conversation is the glory of God. Satan has a desire though to attack Job. Why is that? Satan hates the children of God and desires their demise he revels in their pain. What does what Satan want? He says, look, take the hedge away, and I promise you that Job will curse God. He wants Job to curse God, knowing that would hurt the creator and ultimately would destroy Job. And so the testing of Job and his integrity through it is what God stakes his glory and integrity upon. And I want you to see something, because oftentimes... <laughs> It's all mixed up, and we're going to talk about this. Why did God and Satan have a wager and, and Job pay the bill? And what we miss is this that Satan has attacked God's glory and God's integrity. And I want you to recognize this God, in his infinite wisdom, instead of proving his glory, which he could have done like that at any point, actually brings Job in to answer the question. And you start seeing Job standing for God and proving his integrity and glory. Because as we look upon the scene, the boardroom or the courtroom, we encounter an argument. This is no casual wager. It is ultimately a question of God's worth. Is God worthy of worship without his presence? without his gifts, without his blessings, without his hedge, without the cattle, without the ox, without the donkeys, without the kids, without the life, without the house? Is God worthy of worship without? And Satan says, not in a million years. And God says, Job will prove it. God states, Job is the exemplary believer on earth. He is. And and I look at this, it would be hard to find higher praise from God than that. Could you imagine God looks down and says that about you? I wish we could have that commendation, or or better yet, to be worthy of such commendation. God affirms here exactly what we learned about Job before. That he's blameless, that that the word perfect means blameless, having integrity. He's upright, he deals with people fairly. He is running from evil and he's reverent to God. Nothing better could be said. Satan contradicts. He says this, Job is a prosperity gospel believer. He worships because of what he gets temporally from you. God says he's a great believer. Satan says this, he's not a believer. And in a broader context, as Job represents humanity, as Job stands in in our stead, Satan is basically saying there are no real believers Because what he's saying is this, God is not worthy of worship. And so Job worships because of what he gets. And if Job worships because of what he gets, then everyone worships because of what they get. And I want you to recognize this. It's God's glory and God's worth that Satan is ultimately attacking, which fits what he's done. (laughs) He rebelled against God because he wanted God's glory. He's always sought for this. So, of course, he's going to attack it. And will he use you? Or attempt to to prove his point? Of course he will. One Combinator notes this, Satan thinks or wishes that Job's good conduct has been motivated by self-interest, not deep conviction. Satan in his own wicked rebellion comes before God to undermine God's glory and worth. I want to remind you, he didn't slip in by accident. Nobody slips in on God by accident. He's supposed to be there. You'll see And we don't have time to delve into it. But after the cross, he's not given that opportunity anymore. (laughs) He doesn't get to walk in and accuse. Because Jesus Christ is sitting there as our sacrifice accomplished and done. But in this dispensation, he is. He's there. It's, it's, It's for a reason. Satan makes our worship out to be cheap loyalty bought with the trinkets of this life. Health and wealth. Remember, he is the accuser of the brethren. God, knowing Job as only God can is fully confident in Job's faith. The fact is God knows who keeps Job steadfast and it's not ultimately Job. He knows Job's heart. He knows Job's keeper. And again, it's because it's him. So God permits Satan's experiment. And I want you to understand this because it goes back to that same wrestling. Satan's proposal, but that doesn't happen without God's permission. And don't miss this. In the accusation by Satan against God and his worthiness, God puts forth his precious child, Job, to negate Satan's lie. I know when we read it, we think he's the pawn in these Satan-God game. And what we don't realize is that he's the fighter in the ring for God's glory and his worthiness. He brings Job in to contend in his place And for his glory. And I put, oh, what confidence God had in Job because, and I want you to know this, he knew who held Job. Satan doesn't know that. Satan doesn't realize this. This is the rebellion of his heart. He can't see what God has done in Job's life. What makes me wonder is this, though are our lives available to be used for God's glory? Because ultimately, Job's life and what he walks through is for God's glory, the the defense of God's glory. We look at the offense of sharing his glory, and here is Job defending God's glory to the accuser, the ultimate adversary, the one who's in the garden tempting Eve to sin. And what does he use? He uses the chance to be like God on her, and he's going to come to Job and strip out everything that God could have given and saying, he'll never worship you for who you are. And we're going to find that Job is going to defend God's glory here in the best way. But are you available to be used for God's glory? Or would our response to life prove God's worth and glory? Would our faith and worship negate the lie of Satan, or would it prove it? Because that's the question we're going to be forced to ask. (laughs) I know when I read Job, and and I'll be honest with you, I, I don't enjoy it in the sense that it's got this light, fluffy cloud, blue skies, 70 degrees, go plant some flowers flavor to it. There's a darkness and a heaviness, and, and you watch your kids walk by, and you read about that, and it's, it's hard not to feel um, down, dark, melancholy. But sometimes that's the danger of attaching. Instead of seeing that God Job is stepping in to fight for God's glory, that that his life was used for the supreme purpose. (coughs) Satan leaves the council and appears to wait until the next gathering of Job's kids to unfold his destruction. This carries us to scene number two. Now we're on earth. I call it Satan's execution, verses 13 through 22. And right away, we encounter an attack against Job. Look at 13 through 19. (coughs) And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. We know they do this. We read about that in the first five chapter first verses, sorry. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were ploughing, and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Note this, while he was yet speaking, that's important. This is the waves that crashed. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and have burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made up three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. The calamities come pounding in like rolling waves. I don't know if you've ever been in the ocean and been knocked down by a wave. And rarely does the ocean stop to let you stand up. Right? It keeps pounding you. That's why people get drowned in the ocean, knocked down and knocked down again and pulled under. That is what Job is going through. He doesn't have a chance to catch his breath. Let me walk through it. Job hears of a vicious human attack and the ox and donkeys and employees are gone. Before he catches his breath or processes it, while he was yet speaking, he hears of a violent natural calamity, sheep and goats and employees gone. Gone. And maybe he begins to roll some things over in his head. Remember, he's an extremely intelligent man, gifted in business and farming. But before he could even think of anything while he was yet speaking, hears of another vicious human attack and the camels and employees all gone. And we work through ranges of different people groups. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. Ultimately, here are them in their their, uh, pilgrimage days, going out and attacking and taking. And and so 3,000, some all gone. It's done. Followed by the worst news ever, a violent natural calamity has taken all of his children. Everything Job has and holds dear except his wife, gone in a series of messages that come so quickly after each other, there's no time to think or process in between them. But when all of that is done, the waves, I say, stop crashing, but Job is definitely still spitting up salt water. We encounter an answer from Job. Look at 20 and 20 through 22. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground, and if you highlight in your Bible, this is the one, and worshiped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither: the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away; blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job does get up and engage in immediate grief. The ripping of the mantle, the shaving of the head. Actually, in Leviticus, the Israelites are forbidden from shaving their head in grief. And so this is also another indication that he's not an Israelite. He shaves his head in grief and he fell down upon the ground. All of that is normal. This is what anyone living in us would do. But then the last is not. He worshiped. Job's response to these crashing waves, to the most horrific experience that any human being can walk through is to worship. He recognizes who he is and who God is and then proves God's point to Satan right there. You take everything away and he'll curse you. They take everything away and he worships. And don't miss that in scripture. It's set up on purpose like that. It's to tell you that he did the exact opposite of what Satan predicted. And he did the exact thing that God would do. It's not that he didn't curse. It's that he actually worshiped. He did the opposite of cursing God. He worshiped God. With no presents or hedges anymore, with complete and devastating loss, with only horrible heartache and pain, Job cries, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job worships his God and brings him glory. He doesn't sin in this nor charge God foolishly. Job proves God's rightness and righteousness. He points to it. Job, in the midst of awful suffering and pain, fulfills the call of all humanity, glorify God in everything. Job was committed and faithful to the glory of God. He worshiped God because of who God is, not because of what God gives. Sadly, we're in the midst of a church, not specifically City Light, but church in general and church as a whole, where we worship God because of what he gives us. We are blessed beyond belief. If you look at the American church compared to the church around the world, and just as in our society, we have more, as a church, we have more. We have so many more blessings given to us as Christians here in this nation than any nation in the world. And so we are easily tempted to say, I love God because God gives. And a lot of our, Teaching and books are about what God gives. They are linked to all the things we get from God. And we miss who God is. I put here, does our lives, even without the suffering of Job, prove God's righteousness? Does it glorify him? And I ask that because none of us want to walk through the suffering of Job. And and I want to mention this in all honesty. We won't walk through the suffering of Job to his extent, No one can suffer to the depth of Job's despair. The only one that suffered more than Job is Jesus Christ. Job is that most extreme of examples. But here's the question. In his heartache and his pain and his suffering, he glorified God. And I wonder if we glorify God and we don't even have the pain and suffering that he has. Well, as we all know, Satan comes back to report to the King of Kings. And he's confronted by God with the same person who did exactly as God said he would. But the Satan is not content with the experiment. He wants to take it a step further. He demands further testing. And so we find ourselves in scene number three, back in heaven now, Satan's intensification. Look at chapter two, one through six. And there was a day similar setup as the last time, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, from whence comest thou? Again, God knows exactly where Satan has been. And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And just to prove that Satan has no integrity, that he's the father of lies, that he's the father of hypocrisy, he made a bet people like to use. He made it, he had an argument with God and said, Job will curse you. You and I know that he's seen that Job didn't curse him. Does he have enough integrity to walk into the council of God and stand before the king of kings and say, you know what? You're right. Well, he chose to rebel against God in his glory, so he's never going to admit anything like that. And so, so God forces him to this. And the Lord said unto Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. In other words, nothing's changed about Job, even through the suffering. And still he holdeth fast his integrity. Integrity takes you right back to that word perfect, that he's going to still be a worshiper through and through. Although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. That is not written there. So you start thinking God is some vindictive mean dictator, playing with ants in a cage and, and having a good time. That without cause is actually very critical as we read through four and thir- all the way through to the end of the book. That Job's argument to his friends, his struggle, his wrestling, his lack of understanding that the without cause part is true. God tells us so. This is the behind the scenes look. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath, Will he give for his life? In other words, all fine and dandy, but you take, you take his health away. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. We come back to another divine council, another board meeting, and God again confronts the adversary. What have you been doing? Satan says, roaming in the world again, like a vagabond doesn't say anything about Job, doesn't say that he's been proven wrong. God says, did you notice Job? He reaffirms every component we find in the first verses of Job's character and says he remains faithful. Satan, you've been proven wrong. That's what God's telling him. Satan does not accept truth or reality. We know that. That's why he rebelled against God in heaven to begin with. And so he says, no, that's not proof. Humanity will give anything for their own skin. And so we encounter amplification. Intense physical pain eats through resolve. Job was not about to face an itching nuisance or a broken bone. He instead would be brought to death's door, wasting away in misery. His vitality gone, his body wrecked by the disease or diseases it was fighting. The kind of hurt attacks the strongest of hearts, It changes the personality and it frays the nerves. I've seen firsthand what that kind of illness does. Where the strongest of people with the highest tolerance for pain have to exert every ounce of their strength just to utter a word. Satan wanted to break Job completely and bringing this physical attack could be the perfect trick. Satan's awful, wicked, evil, but you can't fault his plan. The plan from his perspective, is a good plan. Because this type of agony breaks people. I put as a side note, and we're going to have a lot of side notes as we walk through Job, uh, keep that in mind when you walk that journey with someone. Know that this drastic, deadly attack affects the thinking. It erodes the strongest of hearts and minds. As believers, we need to be reminded of the need for love and compassion Because when you see this amount of pain, and I'm not saying it's specifically related to Satan's attack, but this is a reminder to us as the body of Christ to care for the hurting. And it's a side note to remember how horrific this is and what it does to your character and your personality. But its effectiveness is why the evil one was so quick to push it. He hates God's children and revels in their suffering. So without delay, and this is what's fascinating, it is immediate It's different than the last time. We are moved to scene four, earth again. Satan's second execution. Now you look at verses seven through 10. It's quick. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord. Notice that he leaves God's presence with his permission to attack Job, knowing that this is his best chance to break this guy, to have him curse God. This is, he's got all the weapons he wants. Guess what? To kill Job would render this experiment a mute point because he can neither worship or curse God at death. would actually be redemptive, right? He would be with God immediately. All the pain would be gone. So he is bringing it to the worst possible point without any relief. He wastes no time. He smote Job was sore boils from the sole of his feet unto his crown. And that's a way of showing you, just think about it, your head to the bottom of your feet. He's afflicted with the disease. Don't get consumed that it's just sore boils. Understand that that's showing you that it affected every part of Job's body. And Job took him a pot shirt or a piece of pottery to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. He doesn't accuse her of being a fool. He just says she's sounding like one at this moment. What shall we, and I don't want you to miss this, he doesn't exclude her from the suffering. This is his wife. She's lost all her wealth. She's lost all her children. And he says, Shall we receive good at the hand of the God, and shall we not receive evil or This harm and not trust him. And all this did not Job sin with his lips. This disease I've mentioned earlier before uh, was not just a skin affliction. And, And what we encounter here is absolute agony. Satan wasting zero time leaves the council and just savoring every aspect of this dives in to give Job agony. And this disease was not just a skin, this is not eczema. This is a disease that has Job wasting away, uh, likely on the rubbish heap, because a disease of this magnitude would have made it illegal for him to stay at home or in town. Job is not pitching himself a pity party and saying, I'm going to sit at the dump because my life is terrible. Job has to go to the dump because he's not allowed in the city. He's not allowed around people because they don't want to catch what he has. And so he's pushed out. This is not a choice to camp out. This is forced upon him to leave. He would have been driven out to not infect others. Think of leprosy in the New Testament and the colonies that they had because they were afraid and they had to cry, leper, leper, this is Job. Having to cry out and say, I'm infected beyond belief. I I mentioned a preacher compared this Uh, to AIDS, and I would add this caveat to it. It's like AIDS in the 1980s, not in 2020. And in 2020, you can get on medicine and you can stop the advance of the disease. In 1980, it was a death sentence that would attack you and it would waste away your body. Your immune system would fail you. You would die and you would die uncomfortably. What does Job resort to physically? What I call the most basic of skin relief, right? Which only worsens it, scraping himself With a piece of sharp pottery. When kids get poison ivy, what do you tell them? Don't scratch. You're going to make it worse. And every guy's like, I scratch and pour bleach on it, right? And that's why your skin's all scarred up. But it's (laughs) neither here nor there. That's this is the worst thing you could do. But he's resorted to the only fragment of relief that maybe he could have, but not for long because his wife comes out and we encounter advice, but it is bad advice unwittingly, and understand this, in the end of Job's story, it's not like he gets a new wife and new kids. He has the same wife and they have children together again. This is unwittingly. She becomes an accomplice to Satan and berates her husband to let go and die. She is done with God and sees no chance of survival for Job and wishes the whole thing finished. She wants no more of this lingering tragedy. And so she says, curse God and die. Job wisely refuses that satanic counsel and again affirms his faith and trust in his God. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? As one writer notes, again, as after the first trials, Job's heart is full of God, the creator, who is the author of all good gifts. All the good he has received, he received from God. Can he not trust the same God to give him evil or trust God through the harmful things? And this is critical and to believe that God knows best. But do we believe that God knows best and trust him with all of life? Christopher Ash notes this, the question is settled. The trial concluded. This is all the calamity. Now we're just going to have bad friends, bad advice, horrific lament. We're going to watch the psychological "Quote unquote breakdown of Job, his struggle. He never curses God, he, he never blasphemes God, but he has a lot of questions, and we're going to walk through those. But the, the the trial is concluded. Job's piety results from Job's heart conviction that God is the author of everything, the creator who is worthy of all his worship in the bad times as well as the good. But here's a question: Do we feel the same way about our Lord and Savior? Is He worthy of worship? In the bad times as well as the good, will you worship your God when you feel distant, when you lose connection, when you're not sure, when things feel off, when all the presents are gone? Will you worship God in the good times and the bad? This is, and I'm going to say this hard to read and it's hard to understand or come to grips with. Because we want God to handle this differently, and we think there's a better way. This wasn't necessary. Why? Because we value our comfort, the ease of life, the lack of loss, the immediate medical solution to struggling health or thoughts. Yet, as one commentator notes, the glory of God is more important than our comfort, 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says this, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. In other words, you're rejoicing even though at this moment you are weighed down. And that can be persecution, that can be afflictions of the mind, this can be afflictions of the body. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Job is not part of some petty wager between God and Satan. Job instead is stepping in as God has ordained it to prove God's worthiness and glory. He is answering the attack of Satan So I want to reframe it all in a concluding question. Will we bring glory to God, as Job has just done, will we bring glory to God in the midst of, not in spite of, but in the midst of our discomfort and suffering? See, I think a lot of us are willing to bring God glory in spite of discomfort and suffering. I will still bring God glory, even though I walk through this. And Job says, I bring God glory while I walk through this. You see, that's the big question. Will we bring glory to God in the midst of our discomfort and suffering? And yes, I know this. It is a difficult question and thought. I say it, I wrote it down, and I still don't like reading it. I don't like the thought of it. It's hard to think about. But then again, it forces me to think beyond myself. And it forces me to think about my Savior and to think about my Lord and to think about my purpose, because my purpose is to bring him glory. And Job, in what I still struggle with why at times, why it was necessary, but Job in the most... Horrific of circumstances brought glory to his savior in the most magnified way. Because we know Satan walked into the divine council and says, nobody worships you because of who you are. And God says, Job does. And then Job proved it because he lost everything, everything. That's all that's left for Job. And I want you to realize this. His wife is no longer on his side. She's basically saying, I don't want you to cling to life anymore. I want you gone. Not that she hates him. It's just that she's broken here. Don't make her into a villain. This is a woman who has just reached the breaking point where most of us would have been long past that. Everything is stripped away, and yet Job says, no, I will bring glory to my Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to walk through Job. It's a a tough book to walk through as we, we journey through this together as a church. I hope that it will shape us. Not in a fatalistic way. I hope that uh, it's such a struggle as we walk through Job, hear his story. We start thinking, oh, no, that's going to happen to me. That's unfolding. I hope it's not a fatalistic way, but I hope it's a realistic look at Job. That we understand your glory is above our comfort. That the opportunity to bring uh, and elevate your name is the most important. That we've been left here as ambassadors And help us be strong as we walk through this life, as we walk through persecution and maybe loss of health and wealth and loss of of life as we want it to be, that we will bring glory in the midst of that. That as the world looks on, we've answered the biggest question. We worship God because he's God. We love our savior because he's our savior. We recognize your bigger purpose and the blessing of being a part of your purpose and a part of your kingdom. Help us to understand that. Help us to look with compassion as we walk through uh, Job in these next weeks to understand what it feels like to face this agony. We're going to walk through a lament from Job that's darker than any portion of scripture that's ever been written. But it shares a real heart and helps us understand how we can both walk through suffering and help others walk through it. All for your glory and to elevate your name. In your precious and holy name, amen.